Hey folks, I'm Alex Dow. And I'm Katie Rice. We're here today talking about two very different films. Uh, one of them is Sonic the Hedgehog, that is based on the 90s video game character, very fast rodents, loves rings. <laughs> and uh, the other one is Downhill, that is the American remake of Force Majeure. Welcome to Film Club. So Katie, you and I saw Sonic the Hedgehog a few days ago. Yes, we did. <laughs> and this movie has become uh, something of a uh, of a flashpoint in, in internet discussion because yes. of uh, a few months ago, maybe about a year ago in fact, uh, the first trailer for the film came out mm -hmm. and everyone was very horrified by what Sonic looked like. Yes, I think this is the first example of a film, I mean, you know, films always go to test audiences yeah. and they change them based on that. But this time, Twitter was the test audience for the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer. Yeah. And they said, absolutely the fuck not. We will not stand for this. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like a little bit of a dangerous precedent to me. I, I don't yes. love the idea of audiences getting to control the creative process yes. while the movie is still in production. It's the you know? tyranny of the majority, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But this was, I mean, he did look really... He looked weird. Really he, unpleasant. He, his teeth. <laughs> the human teeth. Yeah, yeah the human oh. teeth just really... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so the Sonic that we see uh, the, the, in the final version mm -hmm. is cuter. They made him more cartoon-like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Looking he looks more like, like Sonic. Yeah, it looks more like the original Sonic exactly, that we all remember yeah. from the 90s. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, but I would say that the characterization is not the same as the 90s. Now, granted, mm. he, you know, he was born in uh, in the 16-bit era. He was not a multidimensional character in, in multiple senses of the word. Yes, exactly. You know? I mean, Sonic was conceived as sort of the anti-Mario for right. the Sega Genesis. Right. I don't know about you. I had a Sega Genesis. I took great pride in it being, like, the edgier of the oh, two systems. Oh, okay. You know? You're like, it was like, well, Sega's, like, not your little brother's video game system, you know? <laughs> and that was kind of Sonic's whole vibe. He was like, you know, he's like kind of a cool, rude guy, you know. Is he a cool dude with a rad attitude? Yeah, he's very like, <laughs> he's sort of poochy-esque, yeah. actually. <laughs> or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, very very like much that. so. Yeah, yeah very yeah, Ninja yeah. Turtles as well. You know, he's this, this spiky haircut, mm -hmm. and he's always sort of giving this attitude where he's like, He's like, nah, -uh. <laughs> yeah, I'm too fast like, for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the version in this film is more of like a plucky dreamer and a chatterbox. Yeah, you know? a lot of the, about the vague outlines, the vague plot of this movie, a lot of it reminds me of E.T. Oh, it's very much like E.T., <laughs> yeah. but if E.T. like flossed and made uber jokes. Right, exactly, you know? right. E.T. as like sort of a fully formed character because, yeah. I mean, they make him an alien. Mm -hmm. um, so... <laughs> Dad, tell him, tell him about the opening seconds of this oh, movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, to give you a sense of the sort of uh, generic hackiness of, yeah. uh, of the screenplay for this movie, <laughs> the, the opening of the movie is Sonic sort of zipping around San Francisco. Dr. Robotnik, played by Jim Carrey, we'll get to him later, mm -hmm. he's chasing him through the streets, and we get a freeze frame on Sonic's face, <laughs> and he says... Yep. I know what you're thinking. That's like the first line of the, of the script. So. Yes, a widely mocked, cliched, yeah. you know, I bet you wonder how I got to this point there. Yeah, yeah. Literally the film never the film. rises above that no, level of writing. No, it certainly does not. This was 100% a work for hire on the writer's part, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole thing feels very market-tested, you yes. know, and, and even in a way that... Uh, I mean, this is we're talking about an adaptation of a video game. This right. is very much like we have a piece of intellectual property. We can make a movie out of it. Mm -hmm. Even by those standards, this thing feels very lowest common denominator. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah, and they work all these different elements into it. Like, So shortly after the record scratch, we rewind to Sonic's home planet where he's being yeah. raised by... He's an alien in this. Yeah, he's an alien yeah. in this one. I don't remember that. I confess that 
um, it's been a while since I've played the original games. Right. Maybe but... there was something that ex- that explained that they're on an alien world. I don't mm, think so. <laughs> I think it probably just you, the screen's there and you start running. Yes. I, if I had to guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? The screen is there and then you start running. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and then they work in these sort of, like, sort of, like, guardians of Gahul kind of elements at the beginning yeah. where there's all these, um, you know, alien animals and they're all wearing these kind of tribal hats and they're coming after Sonic because he's a special boy with special powers. He's very fast. Yes. He's, yeah, he's like a YA protagonist. He's very special. <laughs> and um, he has to keep running around the universe right. because they want his power. Yeah, um, for to what ends, I suppose, doesn't matter. I mean, he's very fast, so that'd be useful, I feel like, under any circumstances. I guess, but, like, how do you extract the powers from him? Good question. He ends up on Earth, um, and yes. since he's a child, and he uh, ends up in this small town in Montana. Mm-hmm. This very 1950s wholesome small town yep. that he loves. Which, by the way, if you were as fast as Sonic the Hedgehog, would you really want to live in a small town where everything moves that much slower? Where I mean, it seems like slow. city would make a lot of sense for him. But Sonic is a very big fan of this small town where nothing happens. Yeah, he loves it. Maybe he loves it because it's slow, you know? It's, an, it's, a, it's a refreshing change of pace for him. Oh, interesting. Maybe. I think maybe you just put more thought into this characterization <laughs> than, than the filmmakers did. Oh, but, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. They are definitely just gearing up for an E.T. For style sure. story where Sonic, he's very sad because he has no friends because he can't have friends because he's a super fast alien hedgehog. Mm-hmm. Logic doesn't really factor in yeah, this, yeah, yeah. as you probably already figured out. So one night he's playing baseball by himself, playing every position on the baseball field mm-hmm. by himself, and he scores a home run, and there's no one there to celebrate with him, Dad. So yep. he's so sad that he runs really, really, really fast, and this apparently causes some sort of power surge that takes out the power in the entire Pacific Northwest. It creates an electrical anomaly. Right. The government is suddenly aware that something's going on there. Oh, God. They show up. There's um, a scene in this movie at the Pentagon that is just yeah. incredible. <laughs> it's definitely like kid movie logic <laughs> yes. in that scene where it's just like, did a... Did an actual sixth grader write this? Yes, <laughs> you know? absolutely. Um, anyway, Sonic ends up, he's on the run, basically, from the government, mm-hmm. embodied by Jim Carrey as Dr. Robotnik. Right, in, who... in this incarnation, he's just, like, a haughty scientist, basically. Yeah, he's like a scientist who works for the government, and the Pentagon scene I was referring to was all these generals sitting around a table, and they go, we've got the man to bring in for the job, and everyone's like, no, not, yes, call Dr. Robotnik. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and Carrie basically plays him. I mean, this movie's attitude about I was not expecting this from a Sonic the Hedgehog movie, but this is a very like pro small town values kind of movie. Yeah. Like it's very much like you have to believe in, you know, there's something beautiful about a simpler way of life because Mm -hmm. once Carrie shows up, his thing is not just that he's this arrogant scientist who thinks he's smarter than everyone else. He's, like, making fun of all these rubes in the small town Right, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he doesn't much care for human beings in general, but he especially doesn't care for real America. Right, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And uh, James Marsden, he's sort of the, the human lead in this film. Okay, I had a lot of issues with his character in this film. Oh, yeah? Okay. Okay, so the big thing is that he's a small-town cop. He's married to or lives with his partner as a veterinarian. Yep. And he wants to move to San Francisco to become a cop there because he thinks that he has never gotten the chance to prove himself as a cop, Mm -hmm. which means that he's upset that he's never gotten a chance to fire his weapon at someone. Yeah. Like, 
he always talks about how there's no action in this town and stuff. And it's like, isn't that good? <laughs> Do you really want to be on the front lines? Like, you know, shooting at people? Yeah. Like, I found that a you little could bit argue gross. Though, <laughs> you could argue, though, the movie is about him learning that that's not, that that's not important. You know? I, I mean, because his whole, I mean, I, I don't want to spoil what the arc of the film is, but it may not shock you to learn that in this movie about a police officer who wants to go to the big city, he might learn the value of his small town. Of his that he wants small to leave. town. Yeah, he partially yeah, yeah. learns it, though, because so he ends up paired off with Sonic through a series of plot complications I right. don't want to explain right now. Trust, they're very twisty. And, yes. Yeah. Him and Sonic end up on this road trip to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And. Sonic is, like, kind of an asshole. Oh, he's a total dick. And not in, like, the 90s way. I mean, he's more like, <laughs> you know, he's not like this sarcastic yeah, yeah, yeah. surfer bro, sort of like the, orig- like the original incarnation of that character. It's, yeah. it, he's more like, he basically, like, guilts Marsden into taking him along. Yeah. And then just keeps causing problems along the way. He's yeah. like, I want to get in a bar fight as well. And it's just like, yeah. you're the one who arranged this whole thing. Right, because he latches onto this concept of a bucket list. Mm-hmm. So he decides that he needs to put all these things on his bucket list. Like, I'm going to look straight into the camera and say this, making a friend. That's on his bucket list. <laughs> but yeah, like there's all these things that he, he just goes around causing destruction everywhere he yeah. goes. And then... I mean, he also lectures Marsden as well. Oh, like, yeah. The whole thing is like, Sonic is like, I basically took you hostage to take me on this road trip, <laughs> but I'm also going to lecture you about wanting to move to the big city and yeah. leave your podunk small town. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how you don't know what you have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sonic wishes he had a home. Right. But... Is he going to get one? (laughs) Point is, it's a pretty generic kind of hodgepodge of different kids' movie plots. E.T. comes in in the sense that Dr. Robotnik's always trying to snatch Sonic away from his lab. That puts Marsden as the Elliot of the piece trying to protect Mm E.T. Sonic. They have no chemistry, even even so much as a live-action actor and and, and a CGI character can have chemistry. They have very little. There's a lot of bad product placement in this film. Wow. Wow, some true stuff for the Hall of Fame. I would not wish upon our colleague Ignati Vishnevetsky to have been there on a Saturday morning for the screening with us, but I wish he could have been there because he is a noted noter of product placement. I think he would have... He would love some of these. There's a very funny Zillow reference of all things. Yes, yes, yes. At one point, uh, the the female lead, uh, the veterinarian, uh, she says... I've been looking at apartments in San Francisco on Zillow, and the camera turns, and there's a full shot of her laptop with a Zillow page open on it to a four thousand six hundred dollar a month apartment. Because <laughs> money is never real on, on, a, on a cop salary. I yeah, guess. right, <laughs> right. Yeah, this is this is not a good film. No, um, there's and... an Olive Garden Olive Garden reference that uh, goes through it. Possibly the only thing that I had any fun with was Jim Carrey just really yeah. going nuts and eating the scenery. I mean, I almost always enjoy Carrey, honestly. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like he necessarily found a particularly likable or funny character in this case. No, not at all. It's definitely just him flailing around. It's one of those situations I felt like where like, uh, there's a sort of a musical sequence in the middle where Dr. Robotnik is dancing around the inside of his evil lab. Yeah. Watching that, I could just... I could see in my mind the shooting where Jim Carrey strides in and he goes, let's do this. And he gets in there and he's really giving it his all kind of dancing around. And then afterwards, they're just like, wow, what a genius. You know, I I just can only imagine that Carrey showed up on that set being like, let me show you all how this is done. But I mean, to be fair. He knows how to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that is as relentlessly market tested as this. Mm-hmm. Carrie at least feels like an element of chaos. In right. Moment. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. 
All right, so uh, today we're talking about a remake. You know, one could argue that no film is necessary. Generally, it's a kind of a fruitless argument when talking about a film because no film has to be made. But this one seemed especially pointless to me. It's called Downhill, and it is a remake of Ruben Ostlin's Swedish film Force Majeure, one of the best films of the 21st century. Uh, Dowd, you saw this film at Sundance. I did. It's kind of been in the ether for a few years, but it premiered a few weeks ago. I would say that Sundance was probably maybe an ideal place to see it because Mm-hmm. It's in Park City, and that's a ski town. Yes. <laughs> there are probably a lot of people there like, oh, I've been skiing as well. <laughs> I, too, have skied. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is shot, and not at the same resort where they shot Force Majeure, yeah. but also in Austria. Okay, cool, mm-hmm. yeah. So the film is about a family who is on vacation in the Alps, and they're this sort of prototypical nuclear family. Right, two rowdy boys, mm-hmm. dopey dad, yeah. stressed out mom. Yep. You're sort of typical sitcom American family. Totally, which is a slight variation on what they are in Force Force Majeure. Indeed. The plot is very similar to Force Majeure, at least superficially. So they're the on this. The setup is the same. The setup I, is almost exactly yeah, the same, yeah. Right. So they're at this resort on vacation for a few days, and one morning they are out on this veranda or something yeah. uh, outside of a restaurant. And what happens is a controlled avalanche happens right near the restaurant. Right. And this big wall of snow appears to be coming straight at them. And the father, who is played by Will Ferrell in this mm-hmm. film, sort of reacts instinctively, grabs his phone, and, and he makes a beeline for the exit. He, he basically just runs. completely leaves his wife, who's played by Julia Louise Dreyfus, and mm-hmm. her two kids behind. It's a false alarm. Yeah, and the mom stays and covers the boys' yeah. heads while he takes off. Now, if you haven't seen Force Majeure, it's possible you saw what, what something happened last summer, which is mm-hmm. the relevant clip from, from the movie, yes, which in the- Force Majeure is shot it's a single take. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost shot to look like cell phone footage. Exactly. It's them sitting from Far behind. Away. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that sort of made the rounds on Twitter, and a bunch of people mistook it for real cell phone footage. Deliberately, someone put out a tweet that said it was one of those, like, oh my God, look at this. And then it was a scene from Force totally. Majeure. I mean, it says two things. One, sometimes you're in your critic bubble and you don't realize that Americans really don't watch a lot of foreign films because That's I true. saw that clip and I was like, oh yeah, Force Majeure. But it took a couple days for that information to really disseminate across yeah, Twitter. And the other thing is that it is a very, very strong premise for a movie because yeah. it really touches on a lot of just touchy subjects around gender relations mm-hmm. and the nuclear family and like it kind of gets into the same territory where a man will be praised for babysitting his kids mm-hmm. but it's just assumed that a woman will do it. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I think that Force Majeure works so well, mm-hmm. the, the original Swedish version, is that uh when that happens, the fallout of that means two different things to them. Mm-hmm. To the father, the whole thing plays like a challenge to his masculinity. Exactly. Suddenly he's like, I wasn't a strong man, mm-hmm. and she doesn't see me as strong. He basically has this whole meltdown of masculine ego yeah, about, yeah. The, about the incident. Yeah, he can't stand having his image of himself as a strong protector challenged by his own actions. Right. He well, he won't even he admit it at first. It. He won't even yeah. admit that it happened at first. Right, exactly, because he, he can't even conceive of it. It's right. like it's too much of a threat to his ego. Right, but for his wife, I think it's more about, like, who is this person I'm married to mm-hmm. that would abandon us? It's less about masculinity for her, and I think a lot of the tension of the film comes from that difference of perspective on it and her frustration with his inability to accept that. Right, yeah. Now, Downhill superficially replicates that same structure. Superficially. I mean, the, the, the movie unfolds in much the same way, mm-hmm. but the whole commentary on masculinity is gone. Right, uh, and that's why I say that this movie is pointless because it's that commentary on masculinity that makes force majeure so sharp, so trenchant, so relevant, is yeah. that it does 
get into these abstract ideas in a really smart way. But this film kind of ignores that whole layer and only deals with it on a superficial level, turning it into kind of a regular sitcom-esque relationship It is kind movie. of a sitcom. And, and some yeah. of that, I think, is the casting. I mean, I think that Farrell is miscast, I think. And, mm. and part of the reason is that I think that this premise really works if you have somebody who thinks of himself as kind of an alpha. Exactly. You know? Where Will Farrell is... Farrell seems goofy from the start. Exactly. The, the first minute we meet him, he's like a goofy sitcom dad. Exactly. So then you're not really surprised when right. he runs away. It's just right. you expect it from the character. Right. Yeah. Well, and the movie isn't very interested in this, this crisis of masculinity mm -hmm. or anything. It's just like he's kind of a negligent dad who's well, on his phone too much. Yeah, it's just kind of like... Er, er, they seriously like make the conflict up. that he looks at his phone too much. Mm -hmm. That's like the, the whole arc of the movie is like he needs to learn how to be a better dad. And spend more time with his family. It's much more yeah. sentimental, too, than Force yeah. Majeure. I mean, Force Majeure, Oslin has been compared to, to Michael Haneke, that there's a certain cold precision to his filmmaking. He's certainly along the same lines, and he really likes to just take really messy emotional conundrums and just jump all the way in, oh, yeah. just up to his in, neck yeah. in I mean, difficult like, emotions. Like, like yeah. Deep cringe comedy. There's a moment in this film that to me feels a bit like a microcosm for everything that, that, that it does mm -hmm. wrong. There's a moment in the film where a character makes a decision to try to salvage things and that character is doing it sort of for the family Right. And, for appearances' uh, For appearances' sake, yes. And same moment exists in Force Majeure. They don't state what's happening. They don't mm -hmm. state the character's motives. Mm -hmm. And downhill, Julia Louis-Dreyfus has a whole speech about what it means. Right, where she, she lays just, the subtext She just lays all, all the subtext out completely. And that, to me, is the movie in a nutshell that just any amount of ambiguity that was in this premise is gone. Yeah. This is just much broader and more sentimental. I mean, yeah. Uh, the filmmakers are Nat Faxon and Jim Rash. Mm -hmm. They wrote The Descendants for Alexander Payne. Uh, their previous film before this was The Way, Way Back. It's this kind of throwback summer camp comedy. Okay. I missed um, that one, so. I'm not a fan, okay. personally. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, their sensibilities, I think, are way too nice for this story. Absolutely. Um, the I... movie kind of bends over backwards to give Farrell's character, because Farrell's character in this version is mourning the death of his father, mm -hmm. and that, to me, felt totally like the only way that that is even relevant to what's happening in the film is it feels like a way that we can feel sympathetic to him. Yes, exactly. It doesn't factor into the plot. It yeah. doesn't have to factor into the plot, but it doesn't factor into the emotional arc of the story either. Totally. I did like Dreyfus. I think she's pretty good. Yeah. I think that she's really good at, at expressing disappointment and frustration, mm -hmm. and that's a lot of what this role is. Yeah, she is good, and by the end of the film, I felt that the film was being fair to her character in the sense that, like, her anger is justified and, you know, she's not just being, like, a crazy bitch. But I'm tired of the dynamic of the goofy guy and the nagging woman. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's just so boring. I think this might be a little bit more nuanced than that. It's because a little more nuanced She than has that. reasons. It it's not like the movie's like, he's a fun-loving guy and she's just and she's being a, a shrew. Yeah, I mean, he kind of does some shitty things and mm -hmm. she has a reason to be irritated with Sure, him, that's what I know? mean when I say it, it does come around in the end. I mean, I guess ultimately, I don't, if you're gonna, if you're gonna go through the trouble of remaking a, a, a perfectly good, some would say a great film, mm -hmm. I think it's okay that it's different. I just wonder how much we need a version that's more sentimental, that's broader, and that just doesn't cut as deep. Yeah, and loses the biggest thing that makes Force Majeure so special. I don't see the point in, frankly, dumbing it down. All right, everybody, that's all we've got for this week. Please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back next week with a fresh crop of movie reviews. Thanks. Bye.